Oh, Heavenly Father, we are grateful once again that you've persevered us through this year and brought us to this place where we can truly celebrate your rescue mission for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we pray that as we ponder this incredible mystery of God in human flesh, we ask, Lord, you would take our minds and think through them, take my lips and speak through them, that you would take each and every one of our wills and bend them to yours and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this has been one heck of a year, hasn't it? You know, I mean, you just think we've had the worst pandemics in 100 years. Um, the George Floyd murder sparking out into protests all over our land. An election season unparalleled and ongoing tension. And unemployment rate at 7%. It swelled to 15% in the height of the pandemic. But the Browns are 10 and 4. The, my Washington football team is in first place in the NFC least. And vinyl albums have stormed back to great popularity among young people. You know, how much fun is that? What a year. But what I think one of the things in which this cultural moment has brought us to the knowledge of and face to face with is the fact that despite all our best intentions, the world is chaotic. Suffering and evil is real and we can't escape it. And even in our modern digital age, we've tried real hard to insulate ourselves from it. And quite frankly, we've done a pretty good job of it. We have better medical treatment, better food, better housing conditions, better money, more welfare services, better access to education, cheaper entertainment, a lot better coffee than we used to drink, and a lot better beer than we used to drink, quite frankly. On the outside, our lives seem so well curated, clean, and peaceful. But the truth of the matter is, it's not. A number of years ago, journalist Greg Easterbrook wrote a book called The Progress Paradox. And the subtitle says it all. How life gets bitter while people f- better while people feel worse. You see, we live in a world which, on the outside, is beautiful. It looks beautiful. But get us to report on our self of well-being, life satisfaction, and it begins to undercover something. For example, in a 2003 story about the Golden Gate Bridge written in the New Yorker, it unveiled a great paradox about that great bridge and that paradox is this on one level it's a symbol of great human engineering it shows that we have the power to tame the nature but yet on another level it's a symbol and a monument to human meaninglessness why because the golden gate bridge is one of the most popular places in all the world to commit suicide The article that traces the debate about 
erecting a barrier to stop people from jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. And the article zooms in on one man in particular who in the 70s left a note and said, I'm going to jump off the bridge unless one person smiles at me along the way. He passed person after person, tourist after tourist, business person after business person, and nobody smiled. So at the height of the bridge, 265 feet over the San Francisco Bay, he climbed over the four-foot safety railing and jumped to his death. The article finishes with these haunting words. It says, as people who work on the bridge know, smiles and gentle words don't always prevent suicides. A barrier would, but to build one would be to acknowledge that we don't understand each other. To acknowledge that much of life is lived on the far side of the railing. End quote. Joseph Strout, the Golden Gates Bridge's architect, said that the bridge would demonstrate man's control over nature, and so it did. But no engineer, however, has discovered a way to control the wildness within the human heart. There's a myth about our modern world that says to experience wholeness, redemption, utopia, whatever you want to call it, is to continue the forward march of progress until we fix ourselves up enough. But our experience tells us that no matter how great our external lives are, there's always this emptiness and chaos within. And it's to that paradox, Christmas speaks loudly. And it gives us an answer. And the answer is simply this, the presence of God. A.W. Tozer said in the 40s in his book, The Pursuit of God, the life of man upon earth is a life away from the presence, wrenched loose from that blissful center, which is our right and proper dwelling place, the loss of which is the cause of unceasing restlessness. You see, the Christian story and the Christmas story truly begins with God bringing order out of chaos, shaping the heavens and the earth, and then he passes the baton to humanity, giving them the commission to take the project of creation forward, to build cities, do art, unfold the potential of creation taking the ethos of the garden paradise and push it out into the world. But here's the thing. The key to them doing that wasn't simply to make the world a better place. It was to do that task in the presence of God. Because humanity was made for a twofold process. Number one, to take God's world forward. And two, to do so in the presence of God. That's the biblical vision for being human. And it's the adventure of a lifetime. But sin ruptured that. And it separates us from God's presence. And we're all living, so to speak, east of Eden now. That sense of chaos that we feel, that that sense of inner unrest, is that the world really isn't as it should be. And it's not a beautiful world. 
no matter how beautiful we make it. And the, problems, the problem is that our hearts are cut off from the relationship from which we were first created. So here's my point. No matter how wonderful and beautiful we make the world, whether individually or corporately, that nothing will ever bring rest and peace to the human heart. Because though we were made to make this world beautiful, the key ingredient was always that of being in a relationship with God. So you want to know how to tame the chaos within your heart? It's not through just trying to fix up the external world individually or corporately, but rather by returning to the presence of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, the one whose birth we celebrate tonight. People often ask who really is Jesus, and there's a lot of misinformation, some we've seen on TV specials throughout this season. So let me explain. Jesus was a first century Palestinian Jew who, number one, first announced the kingdom has come. And it was time for God to become king, and he was plugging into the expectations of the Jewish community who had been building within them for a long time, waiting for a king. They knew that life wasn't the way that it should be, and they'd been looking for the Messiah a long time back. They knew God had created the world, and the world isn't as it should be. And Jesus came into this world and said, the kingdom of God is now, and it's here. And he did so through stories. He told stories announcing what the kingdom of God was like. He would say things like, well, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who sowed seed. And half the seed seems to be wasted, but the other half is going to produce a bumper crop. He told stories that said, uh, announcing this kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of God is like a man who discovers a treasure in a field. And he goes back to his house, sells everything he has to buy that field because the treasure in that field is worth millions and billions, far more than anything. That's what God's kingdom's like. Jesus told a story like the kingdom of God is like a family with a father, with a party animal son and a goody two-shoes son. And the party animal son just runs away and says, give me my money, dad. And it runs away. It's gone for years. But every day the dad waits out on the porch for his son to return. Well, the goody two-shoes son did everything the father asked. Well, eventually that son comes back. The father runs off the porch and embraces and brings him back in and throws him a better party than he ever had when he was away. But the goody two-shoes son says, what, you never threw me a party? See, the kingdom of heaven it's like that heavenly father embracing the son who went wayward and taking the kid who thinks they're all doing everything right and saying, come into the party and rejoice with me. Jesus told these stories to say, the kingdom has come and it doesn't look like you first imagined. It looks like this. As a matter of fact, but if you follow me, it'll be better than everything you ever imagined. So number one, Jesus announced the kingdom of God is here. Two, he, had, he embodied the kingdom of God. He went to parties with all the wrong people. The Bible calls them sinners. 
They were people of bad character, but who were ready to latch on to the message of forgiveness and new beginnings, new creation, new life. So Jesus is doing things like that and healing people of all kinds of diseases, reversing the chaos, going back to a new creation. And basically saying this is a sign that when God becomes king, this is what it looks like. But the trouble was, and the trouble is, as Jesus embodied the kingdom, then the forces of chaos and destruction come against them with all they have. Which is why the focal point of all four books of the Bible that focus on Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Their focal point is when Jesus goes to his death upon the cross for humanity. Because Jesus believed it was his vocation to embody a moment when God would come in person and take the weight, the shame, the horror, the sin, and death itself all upon himself. And the further embodiment of the kingdom was the fact three days later he rose again. He was alive in a transformed formed new body it was the same body and yet it was different because he had died and passed through on the other side and jesus was embodying the launching pad of god's new creation when we ourselves get to know jesus for ourselves have a relationship with him live the kingdom way talk to other people about him we embody the kingdom in a way that makes it attractive winsome to people who are looking on from the outside. Jesus embodied the kingdom. And third, Jesus enabled the kingdom. For after he was raised from the dead, he sent his spirit upon all his followers. And he told them, get on with it. Get on with the job of doing in the world which he had been doing up, up, close, and personal with his own people. And that's the power and the promise of the kingdom today. That when we pray a little later in our service, thy kingdom come, what we are really praying is that all that Jesus did will somehow be channeled in and through our lives to all people around us, to our friends, where we live, where we work, where we play, and to people we don't even know yet, wherever we're found but all who need to see the sign of God's kingdom. So Jesus was announcing the kingdom, embodying the kingdom, and enabling the kingdom. And that's the promise that he holds out to you tonight. For unto you is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Because that's who God is. Jesus is God in human flesh, Savior and Lord. Savior meaning the one who literally saves us as we trust in him because we can't save ourselves. He's the great rescuer because we need to be forgiven for not only the things that we do, but for the things who we are. And God on the cross of Jesus Christ becomes our Savior as we trust in him. And he's also our Lord, meaning he's our king. He's our master. We do what he says, not what we say. And therefore, because of that, we find ourselves 
loving what we used to hate and we hate what we used to love. And all of a sudden, by trusting him as Savior and Lord, we have the presence of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, his favorable presence as opposed to his unfavorable presence. So what's your response to that tonight? Well, we see in the Bible and we see in our lives three typical responses how people responded to Jesus. The first one was indifference. And there's two kinds of indifference. There's the indifference that said, well, that's fine for you. But that's not my cup of tea. And therefore, we go living our lives the way we want to live them. And there's really no change and it doesn't impact that person's life whatsoever. They even celebrate Christmas but they missed the whole point. The other indifference are the people who would call themselves Christians, and yet they've gone through religious ceremony, they might have been baptized, might have been confirmed, they might have done the stuff, but there's no life change. There's no new creation. There's really no Savior and Lord thought to their Christian life. And therefore, they're only adopting the world's ways wearing a Christian mask. That's indifference. The second response is hostility. Those are people who hear this message and they say, no way. He's not God. There's all kinds of explanations for who Jesus is. I don't buy it. And they tell you that. And that's becoming more and more prevalent in our culture today. The third response is reception. Paul writes about it in Ephesians that when we trust in Jesus Christ, it's like receiving a gift at Christmas time. We receive him as Savior and Lord. And as we receive him as Savior and Lord, we live ourselves and we find ourselves at the intersection of heaven and earth where it matters today in my life and into eternity. Living in the favorable presence of God. Where are you? I want to invite you to pray with me. To follow Jesus with me. Notice I said following Jesus. That was Jesus' terms. We're not perfect people here at Christ Church. But what we are is a bunch of sinful people of bad character. Just like Jesus spoke about. But loves us with an everlasting love. Calls us to follow him just like his disciples. And as we follow him as Savior and Lord. We do find our affections changing. And we find our lives filled with purpose, true freedom, and hopeful assurance. I invite you to pray with me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came as God in human flesh for us. If you had not limited all your majestic greatness into the cramped quarters of human nature, we could not know the limitless power and privilege of being your children if you had not been blind in the womb we never could have had the scales drop from our eyes if you had not come to die we could never have received eternal life if you had not been torn we could never have been mended and so lord we come to you and we confess that we are rebels Sinners, we, we want to do life our ways and we confess, Lord, our ways aren't working. 
And we ask you to forgive us for not loving others as you have loved us. Forgive us for not quieting the fears of our hearts with the knowledge of how much you loved us. And so, Lord, let us adore you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. For you, Lord Jesus, are our hope, our health, and our life. And we give you our lives to do with as you wish. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.